evening. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us tonight. We are now going to dismiss our first and second grade students. They are going to head down to their class. Thanks, as usual, for worshiping with us tonight, but you guys can head down to your class. We are um, two weeks from the end of a series that we've been going through this semester called The Story of God. And in the Story of God series, we are going through the story of God, but also the whole narrative of Scripture. We've been taking a look at Genesis through Revelation in the Bible, the Scriptures, the Christian Scriptures. Um, As we're looking at the story of God and we're seeing the story of the Bible, we are also seeing the story of our lives on these pages. And as John just read, we are um, wrapping up the formal part of it tonight in the last book in Revelation. Next week will be all about application. We'll talk about how you can find yourself in God's story. Uh, But tonight we really wrap up the story of the Bible. And when we think about endings, when we think about stories coming to a close, um, I know I've talked a lot about movies in this series, but that's how my brain thinks in, in the context of movies. I really love movies. But the ending of a movie or the ending of a story can really ruin the movie. I think most movie endings are completely unnecessary. They're so bad. A lot of times I don't even watch them because they're so bad. There's just not very many good ways to end a movie. So there's a lot of ways you can try to do this, though, and there are a lot of ways they do try to end movies. Uh, Some movies have just an unnecessary ending. It didn't need to be there. I think the majority of movies have that unnecessary kind of like final triumphant finale, and it's just not necessarily needed. Then you have other movies that it just seems like they end. Maybe they feel about movie endings the way I do, and it's just like black roll credits, and you're like, is it over? I can't believe it's over. Uh, Some change the endings. If there's a source material, they change the ending from the original intention of the author, which I think is just heinous in every way. Um, But then you even have movies. I had to crowdsource this one because I couldn't remember what movie it was. But you have movies like Return of the King from The Lord of the Rings that you think it's over and it goes black and then the lights come back up and then they have more and then the lights go down and then the lights come back up. And it's just, they can't land the plane. It just keeps going. They had to hit that three hour mark with that movie, I think. There's a lot of different ways you can end movies. My favorite way to end a movie is the ambiguous ending. Some people hate this, but I love it. I love when as soon as the movie is over, you can't wait to talk to someone about it because you're like, you're interpreting the ending. You're not quite sure what happened. Like one of the ultimate examples of that is Inception. And you've got the top that's spinning on the table and it like starts to wobble and then it straightens out and it's like black. And you're like, oh, what's happening? Is that real? Is it a dream? What's going on here? And as soon as you watch a movie like that, you get online and you're like, I want to know what other people are saying about this. And you talk to the people you're with. I love an ambiguous ending, but only for a movie. We can't have an ambiguous ending to the story of God. We can't just go black and roll credits. We can't just have an ambiguous ending. We need to know how the story ends. And the reason is because it's not just the story of the Christian scriptures. It's not just the story of God. It is the story of us. It is the story of our lives as well. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty invested in life. And I want to know how it ends. So we really can't be ambiguous when it comes to the ending of the story. Here's the thing. This is important because your story doesn't end when you die. 
The story of God and the story of mankind and your story continues after you physically die. So this is of utmost importance, not just for the however many decades you live on this earth. It's important for the life to come as well. Some have said that the idea of an afterlife that religions hold to are kind of a crutch for religious people to feel like their lives actually count. But I would argue that 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 thought is actually put inside of us because it's true. That something happens after we die. And we need to be crystal clear about that because life is so short. Next spring, I turn 40. Realistically, that could be middle-aged. I still feel like a man in my early 30s, but I'm going to hit 40. And that could be the halfway point of my life. It feels like just such a breath. So we need to know not only how our lives and how the story of our lives ends, but what comes next. That's what we hope to tackle here in this sermon in the next few moments together. In Isaiah chapter 65, which is a, we talked a little bit about Isaiah a few weeks ago, but in Isaiah 65, we see the promise of a future to come. And in this story of God, we have taken a look at how the way God intended things to be, the way God created things in this world, were undone by sin and chaos. And then we look at the curse from the very beginning. We look at mankind. We look at the first family, the first marriage. We look at the history of God's people. We look at the history of the church. We look at our very lives, our churches, our marriages, our relationships, and we see that something is broken. Something has gone askew. Something doesn't add up. Something doesn't fit together from the way God intends things to be and the way actually we even just want things to be. But in Isaiah 65, we get this promise. It's in the Old Testament. It's only halfway through the Bible. But we get this promise of an undoing of the curse of sin. That one day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new kind of relationship between God and man and man and woman and man in creation. In Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, we read that God hears our prayers instantly in the new heavens and the new earth. It says that that city will be called Jerusalem and it will bring joy and gladness. Think of a whole city where they're known for joy and gladness. It says that babies won't die after only living a few days. It says that we will have meaningful work. It says that the lion will no longer feast on other beasts, but will eat of the ground. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. It even uses some language from Ecclesiastes. We did a whole series last winter on Ecclesiastes. There will be an undoing of the meaninglessness of life. That promise is a promise of a life to come that you and I have not fully experienced on this side of eternity. Tonight, we're going to take a look at the life that is to come, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, and how that impacts our past, how it impacts our present, and how it definitively impacts our future. 
Would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that there is a definite ending to come. And God, we want to learn wonderful things from your word. God, thank you that you have not left us alone and you have not been silent, but you have spoken through your word and your spirit. God, we pray that we would have a better understanding of what you are doing, of who you are, of where you are, of what you can do to redeem our past, what you can do to be a part of every day of our life and what you will do in the future. God, we want to see you clearly. We want to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you give us ears to hear? God, would you give us energy? It's dark outside already. It's cold outside. It's dreary today. God, we pray that your spirit would energize us, would energize my words. God, that my words would not be my words, but they would be your words, and that you would speak what each person needs to hear here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word. We are going to be all over the place in God's Word tonight. Hope that's all right. There's Bibles on the windowsill. If you don't have one, you can follow along on a Bible app. And we are going to see what God has for us tonight. There's a character that I need to introduce you to for us to understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. And that character is the, uh, a guy named John. John was a disciple of Jesus. John also wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are letters to the church, and this book of Revelation. If we look at the book of 1st John, which is one of John's letters, we read that, G that John actually came in contact with the living God, Jesus, the God-man, fully man, fully God. We read John write this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is saying that we and the other disciples, the apostles, those that followed Jesus, they came in contact with God made manifest. God incarnate. God in the flesh. That's the perspective that he is writing from. We'll come back to that, but then after that, that he writes Revelation. We need to learn a little bit about this book of Revelation. It was letters written to seven churches. The beginning of the letter is an introduction in Revelation, and then there's seven letters, very short letters, to these seven churches in the first century that John is writing to. John is writing it from Patmos, which was an island that they would send prisoners. He would had basically been exiled and imprisoned because of preaching the name of Christ, and he had been put on this island, and they left him there, and he sees this vision— he has this experience with God, and that's where we get the book of Revelation. These churches, the seven churches that John is writing to, were churches that were in peril. All seven of these churches were where we now know as modern-day Turkey, and each of these seven churches was in peril for one reason or another. But there are some common themes. All of them were in trouble. Five of them were in trouble directly because of their own sin in the church. And two of them are in trouble because of their own suffering, because of what's being done to them. 
and they also are in a place of, of poverty where they need financial resources. So each of these churches is in peril because of sin, because of suffering, because they are a, a minority in their environment because the Roman Empire has control of Turkey in this day. And so they're trying to do church in a culture where you are being demanded, where you are being forced to go to the pagan temple and make sacrifices to pagan gods. So that's the environment that these seven churches are in. And that's the, the backdrop to these um, churches and the letters that are written to them. And then in Revelation 1.9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is saying, I'm with you. I'm in tribulation. I'm in exile. I've been imprisoned on this island. And then God is going to appear to him. And there's several things. We can't take a look at everything that he sees because it's 22 chapters. And there's a lot there, but we're going to take a look at a few things. But to summarize, the first thing that happens in Revelation 1 is John sees God in his fullness. And the language that's used there in Revelation 1 is telling us that he sees Father, Son, and Spirit. He sees the fullness of who God is. Other people throughout Scripture had seen glimpses of who God is, or they'd come face to face. John himself had come face to face with Jesus. But he is seeing God in his fullness in Revelation chapter 1. Then in Revelation chapter 1, we see symbols from the Old Testament. We see things being fulfilled that were prophesied in the Old Testament. We see bronze uh, feet that will crush other kingdoms, which was prophesied in Daniel. We see God using a two-edged sword. We see Ezekiel and Daniel fulfilled. We see all these Old Testament allusions to who God is right in front of John. Then in chapter 1, verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Let's just take a look at what God is saying here to John. John is seeing God in his fullness, the full glory of God. And this is what happens. The first thing that we notice is he, when he saw God in his fullness, he fell to his feet as though dead. A very natural and common response to coming in contact with the holy God. And then there's a period, and then there's the word but. But is a glorious word in scripture. It is incredible how many times scripture has this word but. And it is incredible the grace and the mercy and the steadfastness and the faithfulness that we find in our God when we read the word, but. Because just like John, we deserve to fall dead before the presence of God. Whatever form we come in contact with him, we deserve to fall dead in front of him and just proclaim our unworthiness and never rise again. But. He, God, laid his right hand on me. In scripture and in ancient cultures, the right hand was the hand that you would put on someone to commission them, 
to empower them, God puts his right hand on John. And what does he say? Fear not, for I am the first and the last. God is saying, I am who I am. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. I started everything, and now I'm going to finish everything, and I'm going to show you how. But fear not. What an amazing, amazing thing. And I'm the living one. He's eternal, but he's also living. He is active. He is a part of history. And then he says, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He is saying, I came and I lived and I died and I rose again. The story of Jesus. The story of redemption that we covered two weeks ago. He is saying, I have the keys to the ending of the story. I have the keys to what happens next. Because I am God eternal, but I humbled myself and came and lived among my people. I gave my very life for them, but I didn't stay dead. I rose again and I ascended to be with the Father. And now I hold the keys to eternity. Man, there is a lot packed in these couple sentences that we see here right in Revelation chapter 1. So what is God trying to do here right off the bat in Revelation? And what is he going to try to do with the rest of the book? What is God trying to do? He is not trying to show John when he is coming back. He is trying to remind John of the fact that he is coming back. We talked about this when we talked about the Old Testament, about how when I was a kid and when I was growing up in my church context, the Old Testament was like that room or that drawer, that closet in your house that you don't go into because you're afraid of what's behind there. Well, if that's the case, on the other end of this proverbial house, there was another closet called Revelation, and you didn't go in there either. I was scared to death of Revelation growing up in the church. So scared. I'm getting some nods from some other church kids out there too. I was so scared of Revelation. Because my only context, I had two contexts for Revelation when I was a kid. I would be in a, a church meeting and someone would stand up to pray and they would pray, Lord, come back even this very moment. I'd be like, no, thank you. I got things to do. My parents said we're going for ice cream after church. I negate that prayer. What do I do to negate that? How do I keep that from happening? So that was one context. The other context was late night preachers on TV. The late night preachers on TV, they would have their charts out and they would flip through their charts and they would do all the math math, and they would have this long stick and they'd be pointing at all these figures and they would have a date that they picked when Jesus was going to come back. It scared me to death. It was so scary to watch on TV as a little kid. That was my context for the book of Revelation. And the church has spent decades trying to figure out What is the rapture? When is Jesus coming back? What order are the end times all going to happen in? There was a massive, massively popular uh, series of books called Left Behind. They made a movie with it. Nicolas Cage was in it. It It's been just such a huge part of church culture, and it's asking the wrong question. Revelation is not trying to tell us when Jesus is coming back. That didn't give hope to the church. Because the answer would have been a couple thousand years from now. No, Revelation is answering the question emphatically. He is coming back. 
And not only that, but right now, as the church is struggling, as the church is being persecuted, as we suffer in these bodies of flesh, as we wait on redemption and consummation to come, he's sitting on a throne. Revelation is trying to tell us emphatically, he is coming back, and until then, he sits on the throne. The word throne is used in 19 of the 22 chapters in Revelation. The word throne is used 40 times in the book of Revelation. It is the theme of Revelation. Jesus sitting on the throne. Jesus wants John and the persecuted church to know, I am on the throne. And I have been a part of history from the very beginning. That's what the book of Revelation is trying to do. He is reminding the church where he is. So, for the rest of tonight, we're going to talk about why this is important. Why this is important for history. It's the culmination of history. It informs how we live today, and it tells us about our future. Three reasons it's important. It's the culmination of history, the consummation of history, It informs how we live today, and it tells us about our future. First, history. The Jews and the Gentiles that followed Jesus that were in these seven churches and the other churches of the New Testament were under persecution. This was nothing new for the church of God. If we look at the story of God, and if we look back on everything that we've learned about the story of God, God's people were in power one time, And it was for a few generations, and then the kingdom of Israel divided because they couldn't get along, and they sinned against God. One time in power, and they were divided because of their sin. God's people were never in power. They were always marginalized. They were always being persecuted, exiled, enslaved, persecuted, killed. And the same is true today. Since Jesus ascended to be with the Father, there has always been people groups being persecuted for the faith. From one end of the spectrum of being marginalized in society all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is beheadings and burned at the stake and killed for the cause of Christ. That has been going on since the very beginning. And the book of Revelation, these seven letters, is written to churches that are in no different circumstance. They're going through hard times. They need hope. And we are no different. We go through difficult times. During the Story of God series, we've been encouraging people in community groups that meet throughout the week to tell their story. And what happens as we tell our story in light of God's story? We end up talking about all the sin and suffering All the suffering that we have endured, all the sin that we have walked in, that's what we end up sharing about. Our story, God's story, the Bible is not about how great we are and how great we've done at following Jesus. And we are not all here tonight to talk about how great we are at following Jesus. We are here to worship the one who is worthy. As we look back at the history of the church, as we look back at our history we see that we have not followed in God's ways. As John gets into this heavenly throne room scene in Revelation, 
it starts to cast history in a new light. Okay, here's the part where I'm going to talk about stuff that's going to kind of wig you out and we don't have enough time to get into it. But I just want to throw it out there for us to think about. That a lot of times in Revelation, we have spent way too much time thinking that the things in Revelation are going to happen in the future. There's much of Revelation that has already taken place. Because remember the purpose of why Revelation is being written. God is saying, John... As all these things have happened, as the Israelites have been exiled, as they've been persecuted, as they've been enslaved, as the church is now being persecuted, I have been sitting on the throne and I have been a part of history from the very beginning. Nothing happens without my foreknowledge. In Revelation 5 and 8, we read about this bowl of incense which sounds kind of hippie and interesting. I wonder what it smells like in heaven. But we're told that that bowl of incense is the prayers of the saints. That your prayers, my prayers, the prayers I prayed for you this morning are being stored up in heaven. And that only in the last days, when we stand before our maker, will we see those prayers poured out, and fully fulfilled. And then there's these these seals and these scrolls that are opened up in heaven. And those seals and those scrolls, most commentators believe that that is the story of God's people, the story of history. God, in front of John, is opening those up and saying, look, I was in control the whole time. Look, I am a part of all of this. Nothing happens when my back is turned and I don't see it. What great hope he is bringing to the church. Imagine God taking the worst things that have happened throughout history. Imagine God taking the worst things that have happened in your life and using them for his glory. And ultimately, our ultimate satisfaction one day standing before him. What great hope that brings because there's some things about your story, there's some things about my story that I just don't understand. There's suffering in my life that I just don't understand. There's suffering in this world that I just don't understand. There's things that I have done that I just don't understand and I can't gloss over and make it go away. What an amazing thing that here, John sees a picture of history where God is a part of all of it, where God is sitting on a throne during all of it. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, it's the next to last chapter in the Bible, we get a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Kind of an expanded view of what we looked at in Isaiah 65. I want to read just a few verses here, starting in verse 3 of Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We see here and we continue to read in Revelation 21 and the beginning of Revelation 22 what the physical dwelling place of God and man will be at the culmination of all things in the new heaven, the new earth, the new city, new Jerusalem, where we will be in God's presence and God's dwelling place will be with man and man's with God. Now, if we are in Christ, we have his spirit living inside of us. In the Old Testament, they would go to the temple and the high priest would get to be in the presence of God for just one day a year. Here, the dwelling place of God is with man and man with God for eternity. And we see this physical dwelling place where we will be with God and he will be with us. He says, I'm making all things new. We see a spring of water of life. If you remember back to our first sermon, how everything was created in the garden, we see this tree of life. Here we have a spring of life. This is a fulfillment. This is a consummation, a culmination of what we first saw in Genesis. And then at the beginning of Revelation 22, where am I? Wow, I don't know where I am in the PowerPoint. I'm sorry, there we go. Okay, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is the exact opposite of what we see go wrong in Genesis. This is a restoration of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. This is a perfect fulfillment of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. We think about God providing our daily bread and we see here that there's fruit for the nations for every month. They have life forevermore. Nothing will be accursed. God sitting on his throne. See, in Genesis, we saw creation where God brings chaos and he brings it into order. It's right there in the language of creation. And then we see sin bringing chaos into the world. And then here at the consummation of all things, we see God bring chaos back into perfect order. A restoration of all things. The ultimate example of this, before we move on to the next section, is found in the death of Jesus. Right here in this verse in Acts 2, 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's all right there. In the worst thing that's ever happened in human history, the God of the universe coming down to save the very ones he created, and they hang him on a tree. The worst, the 
pinnacle of chaos, the pinnacle of sin, the pinnacle of selfishness, the pinnacle of our own fleshly desires, hanging God on a tree and killing him in the worst way imaginable. And what does God say about it? In the sermon in Acts, he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God, even using the hands of lawless men to accomplish his purposes. This is really good news. Because there has been lawlessness done to you and you have suffered from it. And you, just like me, have done lawless deeds. God using those things for his purposes is part of the hope we have in the future. It's part of what John is seeing here. So how does the picture in Revelation affect our present day? Here in this life, we all live for some kind of story that we use to make sense of reality. We have a way of thinking about the past the things we've done and the things that have been done to us. We have a perception of where the future is going to be. And these two things combined controls how we live our lives today. The things we think about, the things we feel, the things we do are largely based in how we interpret the things that have happened to us and our perception of what the future will hold. And that future could be after church tonight or tomorrow or in 10 years or in 30 years or 50 years. We have a story that we live our lives by. But 2 Peter 3.12 says that we should live as if we are hastening the day of the Lord's return. Bringing about more quickly the Lord's return. Peter, and really all of scripture, is saying that we should live in light of this future that we're reading about in Revelation. That our very lives each day should be impacted by how the story ends. And really, I've talked about this before, I'm not going to go into it fully, but I love that kind of ending. The kind of ending to a story or a movie that reshapes the way that you see the rest of the story. When we take a look at the end of the story of God and the way all of humankind ends, it recasts how we see our present day. It should impact how we live our lives day in and day out. In God's word, in the story of God, there are 100 verses about not being afraid. There are 100 verses about trusting in God. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, which we're going to talk about in the spring, spoiler alert, we are told that God will surely do what he has promised. This should impact the way we live our lives author from right here in Iowa City, Marilyn Robinson, says that fear is not a Christian habit of mind. The book of Revelation is telling us you don't have to be afraid. God is a part of every part of history. Nothing happens when he is not looking. And there will be redemption. There will be a consummation to everything. It should affect the way we operate, the way we behave today. We're even told in God's word that when we are in Christ, the spirit of the living God comes and lives inside of us. And scripture says that this is a foretaste. It's a first fruits. It tells us God's kingdom is coming. 
It reminds us that God's kingdom is coming when we look at our lives and we look at this world and it does not look like the kingdom of God. The spirit of the living God lives inside of us, reminding us that his kingdom is coming. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to have to summarize some of this because it's a long passage. I encourage you to read it this week. Read it when you go home tonight. It's a powerful passage in light of everything we're talking about here tonight. But let me set the stage for you. John is seeing this heavenly throne room and there's these scrolls with the seven seals and it's the story of history. It's a story. It's God's story from God's perspective. Not the way we can see it, but from God's perspective. And the scroll with its seals are brought out. And then all of heaven starts asking, who's worthy to open this scroll? Who is worthy to open this scroll? Verse 3 of Revelation chapter 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. That's where we are. That's our lives apart from the one who wrote the story. If there's not an author to the story, if there is no one worthy to open up the seal and explain history to us, we should weep and fall on the ground and be afraid because there's no explanation for it all. There's no explanation for why all this stuff has happened to us. There's no explanation for why we can't get it right. There's no explanation for our physical suffering. There's no explanation for our habitual sin. There's no explanation for our zigzaggy path trying to find God. We should just weep if this is all there is. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. In this heavenly throne room scene, John weeps because no one is worthy. And then the lion of the tribe of Judah, God himself is found worthy. But then he looks, and who is it that comes forward from the throne? It's a lamb that had been slain. This is a picture of Jesus, who is the lion and the lamb. He is a lion because he defeats our enemies. There have been times in the past, there are times right now, and there will be times in the future when you need God to be your lion. 
and defeat your enemies. Because as we read from the very beginning of this story, there is an enemy, the serpent, the devil, Satan, the accuser, that hates you, hates God, hates the glory of God. He is jealous for the glory of God, and we are powerless to stop him in and of ourselves. He will just keep winning. But there's a lion who has defeated Satan, is defeating Satan, and will once and for all defeat Satan in the end. Our God is a lion, and we need him to be a lion. But if he's just a lion, then that means he's a powerful king. But what if we're not in his kingdom? What if we're not on his side? It's only good news if we're on his side. So how can we be on the lion's side? I want to be on his team. He looks like he's winning. I want to be on the lion's side. So how can we be on the lion's side? Because he is also the lamb, the one who was slain. The one who gives his life for ours. When Jesus came and lived among us, fully God, fully man, he gave up his life so that we could be made holy. He gave up his life so we could be made whole in him. He gave up his life. He gave us his righteousness. We give him our sin and he dies on the cross. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the lion to defeat our enemies outside of us, our external enemies. And he is the lamb to take on the sin of the world, to defeat the enemy that is in our own hearts. Because we are men and women of lawlessness. So we need an atoning sacrifice on our behalf. So John sees here a picture of God, the lion and the lamb. And that makes a difference for us today. Let's look back at 1 John 1 and 2. We read, John came in contact with God himself, but then he says, this is why I'm writing this. I am writing because that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy can be complete. John is saying here, we came in contact with God himself and we saw him give his very life for us and then we saw his resurrected body and then we saw him ascend to sit at the right hand of the Father. He was God. He was the lion and the lamb and this fact should give us complete joy now. Fellowship with God now, right here. On this earth, in these bodies of flesh, we can have complete joy joy because he is the lion and the lamb. Hebrews eleven ten through 16 paints a picture of those who have given their lives for Christ. And it says they were able to do so because they were looking forward to a city whose designer and builder was God. They were looking forward to a new Jerusalem. It calls them strangers and exiles, that they were seeking a homeland, that they were looking forward to a better country. This is how we live our lives in complete joy, even unto death, for the cause of Christ. When we see ourselves as exiles and strangers, when we see that there is a city to come, that we are looking forward to a new Jerusalem where the designer and builder is God himself. And that 
new Jerusalem that will be built, we're told that the gate doesn't have to shut because there are no more enemies. Because the lion has destroyed all of our enemies, all of his enemies. And there will be no need for the sun because the son of God will bring light to everything. When we look forward to that, we can have joy in this life. So, how does what we're reading here in Revelation affect our future? Living where we are now, we're going to talk more about this next week, but living where we are now, we are living for God's kingdom, and we are living for the already kingdom, but the not yet kingdom, because we are here. We are still in this body of flesh. We are not with him in glory yet. And a good analogy for kind of how that feels is, imagine that you get an invitation to stand in the kitchen of a world-renowned chef. And if you're this kind of person that likes Food Network and stuff and you have a favorite chef, picture that actual person. But for the rest of us, we can have a proxy of a world-renowned chef who invites you into their kitchen and you get to sit in their kitchen And you get to watch them prepare their very best featured dish. You get to come over in the morning and you get to see them prep everything from beginning to end throughout the entire day. What an amazing opportunity that would be, especially if you love food like I do. But it would also be so difficult. Your mouth would be watering the whole time. You would be thinking with anticipation about how each part is going to taste. When I watch how things are put together on Food Network, I just get more and more hungry because I see the process that's going into it. My mouth starts to water. It's as if I can taste it. But when we're watching on TV, we don't actually get to taste it. The kingdom of God is being prepared and we are watching it take hold in our lives and in this world, but we're not quite there. But what does it look like for our mouths to water for the kingdom of God? The fact that God is on the throne should impact how we trust him today because we are looking forward to a city whose foundations and builder is God. And in this city, there will be no shame before God and others. Families will live in harmony along with all of mankind. There will be no need for the law to restrain man's worst lawless tendencies. A good king will finally be on the throne. There will be no need for a temple to go and worship God. We will be in his presence forevermore. There will be no need for a gate because the enemies will be defeated. There will be no need for a prophet because we will hear from God directly and the nations will be worshiping together. And not one group of people here and one group of people in the back and one group of people over there and everyone hanging out with the people that look like them. No, the nations worshiping together singing in one voice and in one language, the language of the kingdom of God. That's what we have to look forward to for those who are in Christ. So, what is our response to what we have heard here tonight? 
First, we need to allow Christ to redeem our past. God does not give John all the answers for why everything happened. And he won't do that for us either. But just like John, he shows us who he is and where he is. And he is on the throne and nothing gets past him. My kids can sneak things past me. They're too smart for me already. They can sneak things past me. Nothing happens outside the watch and the sovereign hand of our God. We need to let Christ redeem our past. We need to think in light of the kingdom. We need to think in light of what God is doing as we think about what's going on and what has happened, what we have done and what has been done to us. We need to let Christ redeem that. Second, we need to allow the Spirit of God to help us today. We need to let God impact our today by what he has done in the future where he sits right now. We need to let it impact the way we live our lives and the way we trust him today and live more and more for his kingdom. We need to make sure that our future is secure in him. If the story of God has told us anything, if our hope is in us and our religiosity and our awesomeness and our honoring of God or us figuring out life for ourselves, we have no hope. We should just weep at the hopelessness of it all. We need to make sure that our hope Our meaning, our purpose is firmly grounded in the only thing that matters. And that's God and his purposes for the world and for our lives. And if we are in him, we need to remember that just as our justification, our being made right with God is sure in Christ, our future sanctification is guaranteed. He will be faithful to complete the work that he has started in us. And lastly, we aren't going to get a lot into this because the whole sermon is going to be about this next week. We need to hasten the day, speed up the day of God's coming by living for his kingdom. It means our lives looking more like the kingdom, our churches living more like the kingdom, our relationships looking more like the kingdom, our dinner table looking more like the kingdom, this church looking more like the kingdom. We're going to talk more about how to do that next week. The band is going to come up, and we are going to conclude tonight in the only way that seems fitting, and that's joining in heaven, joining what is already happening in heaven and will be happening in heaven forever. And that's worshiping the king. Would you stand with me? We are going to worship our king together. We are going to be a picture of God's kingdom where people come together and worship him, not because of their goodness, but because of his goodness and who he is and that he is a worthy king who sits on the throne and that he is a lion and a lamb and that in Christ we can be sure that we are in his kingdom, not by our own doing, but because of what he has done. God, we praise you because you are worthy 
of our praise. We want to look more and more like your kingdom people, and we want to worship you not just with our words, but with our very lives.